0: From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called A Vision of This Island. When Britain's House of Commons abolished slavery in much of the British Empire on July 26, 1833, their action presented a considerable challenge in the British West Indies. Up until that day, hundreds of thousands of Africans enslaved on the islands of the Caribbean had been treated no better than cattle. Now, somehow, they were to be converted into loyal British subjects. As you'll hear, Shakespeare's plays had been performed in the Caribbean for 200 years at the time of emancipation, and were already woven deeply into the fabric of black and white culture on the islands. So it's not surprising that he was used not only by the colonizers, but also later by the nationalists who bent his characters and messages to their mission. To talk about the deep but little-known history of Shakespeare in the Caribbean, we've invited in two of the handful of people who know about it. Dr. Giselle Rampall is a lecturer in literatures in English at the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine, Trinidad. And Dr. Barrymore A. Bogues is director of the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown University. Giselle and Tony are interviewed by Neva Grant.
1: In researching this segment, you told us so many fascinating ways that Shakespeare has sort of meandered his way into the life of the British Caribbean. So, Giselle, how did Shakespeare even begin to make his way into the British Caribbean? I mean, it it happened fairly soon, even after his death, right, because the British were already there in that part of the world.
2: Yes, I think that's true. Um, Shakespeare came with the British. The British, of course, um, a lot of the Caribbean islands were colonized by the British in the 1600s, and they did bring a lot of their cultural practices. Um, there were British theatrical groups touring through the West Indies on their way to America. So there were um, theatrical performances in the colonies, and I think the slaves would have been very much post to that um, in fact it, even in 1823, um, there are records of black bands performing condensed versions of Richard the Se- uh, Richard III. And even a little bit just after that, in 1837, there was a famous um, Jamaican lithographer, artist, Isaac Mendez Belisario, who also mentions that Richard III was a favorite among the, these black performers. And so Belisario, the same Belisario also... Uh, has a painting of what what is called the Jamaican cuckoo or actor boys. The cuckoo. You you say the cuckoo. Uh, yeah. That was their that was their nickname. Cuckoo. Yes. It's K-O-O-K-O-O.
1: Right. And that was their nickname. That was uh, probably in the local patois. That they were called
2: Jamaican cuckoo or Acta boys. Tell us about um, Christmas time. Yes. Okay, so Christmas time. Yes, the colonies celebrated the Christmas season with two or three days break. And during this time, the slaves were given a sort of license and the great houses on the plantations were opened and the slaves actually were allowed to attend a banquet. And at these banquets, there were dances and other theatrical events. And in this time, they might have been exposed to Shakespeare. And they would
1: compete. I mean, they weren't just exposed, but they were performing and, in fact, competing, uh, uh, sort of reciting Shakespearean verse and demonstrating their skills in the Shakespearean language and memorization and so forth.
2: Yes, yes. One of the uh, cultural practices that showed exactly that rhetorical skill and uh, rhetorical authority as well was the tea meeting that happened in Barbados and St. Kitts and Nevis and some some other smaller islands in the Caribbean. And there are records that say that this was happening even as early as the 1600s. And these tea meetings were these rural village gatherings in which there was uh, As you said, it was a kind of competition that demonstrated rhetorical skill and what these uh, participants used to show off their rhetorical skills and so on were passages from the King James Version of the Bible and also some Shakespeare speeches. And there's also
1: kind of an unusual form of uh, competition, which grew up in one of the smaller islands. It was
2: called the Shakespeare Mass, right? Yes, that's Tell right. Tell us about that. Okay, so the Shakespeare Mass is associated with Carriacou, which is one of the largest, which is the largest of the Grenadine Islands, just off the coast of Grenada. And Shakespeare Mass is a very interesting uh, cultural practice in that it is actually a verbal and physical duel, there are two opponents who actually have a Shakespeare, what we can call a Shakespeare quote off, and they compete by performing passages from Julius Caesar. So if one of the opponents gets the lines wrong or they hesitate, they are whipped by mm-hmm. the opponent. And what are they what do they whip them with? They whip them well, it's a whip actually. Um it's a whip that is nowadays it's made um, of electrical cord. This this may sound like a naive question, but, but were they whipping to actually hurt their opponent? I mean, Oh was yes, it's a it, it, play in, was it pantomime? Oh yes. They were very, very uh serious altogether communications between the opponents. And one group was from the north, one group was from the south. And it was serious business. I mean, sometimes they would sharpen the edges of the bells that they carried so that when they fought, they actu- the, the bells would be used to cut the opponent. I think we, we should mention that the, the practices that you're talking about and
1: the traditions you're talking about happened during the time of slavery in, in the British Caribbean as well as
2: afterwards, right? It went right up, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah, Yes, the tea meetings certainly happened during slavery. Um, the cuckoo actor boys... Um, um... Mm-hmm. I think they also were around uh, around the time of slavery as well. And they would have continued uh, after slavery was abolished in, in 1834 or so. And they yeah. would have continued. Yeah, Shakespeare mass still happens, the tea meetings. I'm not too sure about the tea meetings and the, the actor boys of Jamaica. We're going
1: to bring Tony Bogues at Brown University into the conversation now. And, and Tony, I want to uh, sort of pull back a little bit and talk about um, the, the wider experience of, of what it was to be in the British Caribbean at the time that slavery was abolished, which was in about 1834. And at this point, the British are obviously going to have to pivot and bring uh, the black Caribbeans into the government because they're going to eventually be controlling things, which means the educational system has to change. So what does that mean?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that a couple of things. One of them is that it becomes very important because you know i think you have to re- remember it's both colonialism and slavery and that the key thing is how then do you make these ex slaves into what some of us have called uh, respectable Christian blacks. This is the period of Victorianism in, uh, in, in England, as you would know. And so the education system um, revolves around the following uh, things. One, there are schools that are set up by missionaries that are set in the rural areas. And those tended to train the ex-slaves uh, and their children into agricultural practices then there are these schools that were uh, that have a longer tradition particularly in the urban areas places like Jamaica College which are elite schools, and those schools tended to then train people and the, give them a, a, a classical British I- uh, education, uh, Queen's Mary College in uh, Trinidad, Coddington College in Barbados. So what you have is not a, a homogeneous education system. You have a, a multi-tiered system, so much so that one uh, figure who's very important in Caribbean intellectual history, uh, C.L.R. James, um, who was born in 1901 and who goes to Queen's Mary College in Trinidad, could write that by 11 years old I was a British intellectual, meaning that he would have read Thackeray, he would have read Shakespeare, um, he knew everything about English history, and so on. So that's basically what you have. And then what becomes, I think, is uh, important is that by the 20th century, The people who want to be writers, uh, artists in in the Caribbean essentially have to deal with Shakespeare because they have to deal with the British literary tradition.
1: Of course, we've been talking this whole time uh, about the British Caribbean. Um, mm-hmm. But I know in the past you've, you've made a, a really important distinction between what was happening in the British Caribbean at this time and the French Caribbean, because there, uh, when they uh, abolished slavery and, and began to educate uh, uh, the local populations, there, uh, there was a very different emphasis in school. Uh, than in the British Caribbean,
3: right? Yeah, there's a different emphasis, and I think this this is really important because there's a very important Caribbean writer, George Lamming, novelist, who makes uh, uh, up the point that if French colonialism meant that the French colonizers had to think around questions of French philosophy... For those of us in the Anglophone Caribbean, philosophy was replaced by literature, and since it was replaced by literature, then Shakespeare becomes critical.
1: So, um, Giselle, with regard to teaching English literature in the British Caribbean, this is really done quite assertively, isn't it?
2: Yes, that's true. Um, yes, okay, after emancipation, as uh, Professor Bogues was saying, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of funding to promote education. And one of the ways in which um, education served as a colonial tool, as a very, very important colonial tool, was through the readers that they introduced early on in the education system, but also early on in the education of these newly freed colonial subjects. And these readers were called the royal readers. And the royal readers were really used as a way of cultivating British values. So they were littered with poems by canonical writers and historical passages as well about British and European battles and victories. And of course, they were littered by Shakespearean uh, passages and so on. So as early as the royal reader three, there was a story entitled The Prince and the Judge, which was about Prince Hal's misadventures in Henry IV. And this continued in Royal Reader 5. There was a reading passage entitled Choice Quotations. And there were all of these quotations from these British canonical poets Tennyson, Byron, Scott, Milton, and so on. And there were 33. And of these 33 quotations, 12 of them, almost one third of them, were by Shakespeare. Um, and, and the, the lessons continue as well in a later. Reader, Royal Reader 6, there was also the speech of Henry V at the Siege of Harfleur, and the all the world's a stage speech. And there was also um, a, an abridged version of King John. So Shakespeare was very much fed to the colonial subjects very early on. And it was because uh, Shakespeare was being touted as a symbol of British literary, cultural and intellectual superiority. So you, Tony, you were raised in Jamaica. Was this your
1: experience as a, as a you that know that was
3: yeah that was my experience and i think uh, for all of us who are um, went to high school in um, the late 60s and early 70s and universities in the early 70s we were still doing shakespeare and even though uh, jamaica got independence in the two um you know, 19, 1962 1962 yeah. um the you know shakespeare and uh, english literature was still um very important in fact i recalled um, at the University of the West Indies um, where I began studying uh, English literature, that they, that that was one of the compulsory courses in the nineteenth and early seventies
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, that one had to do. And then there w- then there was a switch to West Indian literature, but the English literature, you know, and Caribbean uh, and sorry and 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 literature taught in high school was uh, was really around uh, English literature. I mean, uh, the poets I studied, um, uh, Yeats, the Irish poet, William Blake, the English poet, and of course. Um, um, had to do uh, Shakespeare.
1: And do you actually remember teachers saying to you things like, look, if you want to be a cultured human being, you know, you, you have to have a, a handle on these great, you know, sort of touchstones of, of British literature?
3: Not only do I remember teachers saying that, but uh, I what I recall at high school was that we we would spend time, you um, know, lunch period and our break period, um, seeing who could recite which shakespeare shakespeare play um, or portions of shakespeare players better than who so the spirit competition, of competition so the spirit
1: right so the spirit of competition has worked its way all the way up from <laughs> yeah. from, from you know hundreds of years ago uh, yeah. into your into yeah. Your yeah. schoolyard mm-hmm. traditions that's amazing right. yeah
3: yeah
2: um, and Giselle, what about your own upbringing there in Trinidad? Was it similar? Um, yes. Um, I was first exposed to Shakespeare in um, high school. The first, the, the play that we did was Twelfth Night, and I think that's actually what made me really interested in Shakespeare. But even before I started that class, um, there was the understanding that Shakespeare was the great bard, you know. Um, <laughs> what do you think explains the kind of...
1: Uh, permanence or the uh, the apparent permanence of Shakespeare in the curriculum like this? I mean, is it just about the fact that, of course, he's he's a brilliant uh, playwright, but is there something, is there some legacy of colonialism that is important as well?
3: Well, I don't know if, I mean, I think partly, obviously, there's a, you know, there's a lingering legacy of colonialism, I mean, you know, around this. But I think there's also the ways in which, in fact, anti-colonial literary figures and and anti-colonial thinkers use Shakespeare. So that the, the perhaps the most important play for the anti-colonial uh, thinkers and literary figures uh, was uh, was a tempest and and the figure of, 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 of Caliban and and that continues um, you know there's uh, C L R James's uh, you know epigraph to Beyond the Boundary you know Caliban will go into regions that Caesar Caesar never knew and you know I mean Caesar you know obviously Julius Caesar Shakespeare Caliban uh, tempest. Um, Lamin's *Pleasures of Exile* is about an explicit use of the of the Caliban figure. Sylvia Winter's work. I mean, you can go right on up, right up until, quite frankly, so much so that Césaire, Amy Césaire, who is French from Martinique, um, the late Amy Césaire had to write a play called *A Tempest*, in which he was a, he now attempted to rethink. Um, the questions of colonialism and of, and of the figure of Caliban. Well, so it's central us, to all of this. Right,
1: and remind us who Caliban is. I mean, he is a slave, he is a monster, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he is also many, many things depending on, on how he's viewed and in what time he is viewed.
3: Yeah, is he, all of that. Um, but I, I think that what is, in, is 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 important is how t- being first seen as Caliban as the savage, um, and you know that the, you know the, the the play Tempest is you know is based on a shipwreck off Bermuda, right? Um, and so that there is a a way in which uh, the relationship between Caliban and Fra- Prospero um, is seen as a relationship between the colonial um, and, and the colonized. Right. Um, and all of that is really about Caliban as savage and then Caliban taking charge of his own self. Right. And um, Prospero and, and, and,
1: and Caliban, and, have, they've sort of taken care of each other, but they've also betrayed each other in different ways.
3: Betrayed, betray, yeah, betrayed each other. <clears throat> but but what is, in, what, what is interesting is, I, I think, is... Uh, there are two things. One is the way in which, say, for example, the Cuban literary critic, uh, Roberto um, you know, using Caliban as a figure for anti-colonialism. And then there's a response, some laminate, and then there's a response, some, you know, even people like Ngugi Watyonga, who's a, a Kenyan writer. And then in the 1990s, uh, there is um, a whole uh, set of books that appear in by Caribbean authors that uses Caliban. Um, again, going back to that figure as a, a figure that can be uh, used for anti-colonial uh, uh, purposes so that it's 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 the influence of Shakespeare in many ways is the point I'm making
2: Giselle did you have something to add G- yes just just to agree that it has continued even in the 21st century um, Elizabeth Nunez for example in 2006 published a novel called prosperous daughter which again is very much anti-colonial um, and even more recently there is a Caribbean-born writer Nalu Hopkinson, who wrote a very interesting short story called Shift. And again, it is figuring the Caliban figure. But what I find really interesting about her short story is that it is not primarily about the struggle between Prospero and Caliban, but it's more about the importance of this sort of Caliban figure and, you know, or, or let's say the descendants of the uh, of the colonized people to shift their perspective and begin the process of self-definition.
1: Both of you have referred to the anti-colonial sentiment in the British Caribbean after independence uh, in the 1960s. And and I'm wondering if that uh, went over to Shakespeare as well. I mean, was there a pushback against performing Shakespeare? Um, I mean, I think okay. this
3: is... That's the well, please, go ahead.
2: Are you sure? Okay. Um, I was just going to say, I think that even after independence, uh, Shakespeare was still seen as as this great literary figure. There were elocution contests, which I suppose is what um, the Professor Bose was referring to earlier in those sort of schoolyard competitions. But I think there were also more structured elocution contests in which uh, students would uh, use Shakespearean passages to show off their lovely, lovely ways of speaking and so on. I mean, I can remember even in my primary school education, having to write, if music be the food of love, play on <laughs> as uh, penmanship um, exercises. <laughs> yes, and we're actually <laughs> in different generations. And yet still, we have both had that same experience. Um, and the secondary schools also did put on Shakespeare plays, these sort of amateur Shakespeare play, um, performances. And there was also, in 1957 in Trinidad, um, the establishment of a theatre group called the Strolling Players, which was established by a man called Freddie Kissoon. And he actually wanted this group to perform Trinidadian plays. But I can remember as well that the Strolling Players did perform Shakespeare plays, especially the plays that were on the school syllabus. So I don't think there was really a pushback. I think it continued even in the Calypso in Trinidad. Calypso calypso music? Calypso music yes. in mm-hmm. Trinidad, yes. There was, after independence, um, well, 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 before independence, Calypso music, Calypso songs were sung in Patois because Trinidad was very much French-dominated. But after independence, when the British really put a lot of funding and so on in education, the shift was from Patois to English. And the Calypsonians could show off their skills by actually singing songs that used these, these very long polysyllabic words and Latinate phrases and so on. And not only that, they also were very particular about insulting their opponents by telling them that they needed to learn Shakespeare if they wanted to be a great calypsonian. and this continued way uh, you know way up to the time of independence uh, the 1960s and what is really interesting too is that in 1958 and 1961 very close to the time of independence there were two particular Calypsos that dealt with Shakespeare one was Lord Christos Shakespearean quotations and the other one now, Pepburn, Shakespeare, the madman. And both of this, the calypsos in terms of content are very similar. And what they did was basically say that Shakespeare didn't know what he was talking about at all, that all of these quotations that people, you know, throw around don't actually make any sense. So that was a really um, interesting anti-colonial uh, subversive gesture as well by the Calypsoonians, which was a change from the previous ones. Tony, I hear you wanting to uh, to jump in there.
3: Yeah, because I think that, um, I think, you know, what is important in re- re- with reference to the question that, you know, how does it continue after independence is that there is somehow Shakespeare is not did not get himself or the or Shakespeare plays and Shakespeare work of Shakespeare did not get itself caught into a maelstrom that it was colonial it it is a very um very strange thing it, so that in other words a, a university of the west indies can teach caribbean literature and has to teach Caribbean literature but therefore but also as well has to you know finds that it, it has to teach uh, Shakespeare as a as a compulsory um, literary cor- course in literature there is something that's going on where he is he is introduced obviously because of the colonial relationship uh, He's taken up as a, his plays are taken up as an anti-colonial figure um, there is a reading of Shakespeare which not many critics know about um, again by C L R James about uh, say Shakespeare being, in fact, a, a writer who was writing against the monarchy, and James has a whole set of lectures, mm. and he gave a, gave a whole set of lectures, particularly in the United States arou- around that, and that somehow, therefore, this exceptional figure then becomes not just part of an anti-colonial repertoire, but also seen as a a part of a universal figure that, and whose work, therefore, can be used in different ways. And and that, that I think, is, is interesting, because what it tells us, I think, is that exceptional literature, has this particular capacity, this capacity even if it is uh, tethered in a set of power relationships that have to do with colonialism and so on, that at simultaneously it speaks to a set of issues that other people can uh, speak to. And that's a set of complexities that I think we need to look at.
1: Giselle, what about today uh, in in the British Caribbean? Is is the performance of Shakespeare, is it still seen as part of a legacy? Or are you seeing interesting Caribbean takes on Shakespeare that are sort of taking it off in, in different directions?
2: Yes, there are. Um, actually, in 2009, the Bahamas started their Shakespeare in Paradise festival. What they have done is they have produced a play every year that... Um, each each play has a bah- Bahamian sort of a sort of Bahamian interpretation, let's say. Um, so, for example, their production of *The Merchant of Venice* had, instead of Shylock the Jew, they had Shylock the Haitian, which really spoke to the particular uh, situation of the Haitian immigrants in the Bahamas who are seen as um, who are marginalized. So that is one example. In um, two years ago, in Trinidad as well the Trinidad Theatre Workshop, which, which actually uh, established by Derek Walcott, they put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And instead of the fairies, the, the, the beautiful fairies that you usually see in productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, they actually used uh, traditional carnival characters, the, the blue devils or jab-jabs. So 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 yes, the, uh, Shakespeare plays uh, do continue to be produced, but I think that Caribbean theater practitioners are uh, making it their own. Um, it isn't, as Professor Book said, just about this anti-colonial uh, stance or this subversive stance. It's also taking Shakespeare as Shakespeare, but also making it their own, making It's a Caribbean Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, of course, and what you're speaking of is is taking place in countries around the world, right? Mm -hmm. People
1: uh, appropriating, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, other people's culture, and particularly Shakespeare, and making Mm -hmm. it their own. Yes.
3: Yeah, I mean, there is just one thing. I I mean, I think I should say in relationship to that. I mean, I'm in the United States, you know, and and, um, uh, there's a student who has just finished a PhD thesis in, in Africana studies, and he was thinking about. Uh, the Toussaint Louverture figure um, in the Haitian Revolution. But central to that um, thesis was Othello, and it's the way in which he began to think about Othello, and Othello and the work that Shakespeare did in relation about Othello to Toussaint and what that might mean in terms of thinking about tragedy.
1: Well, this has been just a fascinating conversation. Uh, Tony and Giselle, thanks so much
2: for being with us. Thank you so much for having
1: us. Okay, thank you very
0: much. (laughs) Dr. Giselle Rampal is a lecturer of literatures in English at the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine, Trinidad. Dr. Barrymore A. Bogues is director of the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown University. They were interviewed by Neva Grant. A Vision of This Island was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kernpaster and Esther Farrington. We had help from Melissa Marquis at NPR in Washington, D.C., Courtney Quello at Brown University, and Carrie Chandler at We Love Beats studios in Barataria, Trinidad. We also want to say a special thank you to Fabienne Viala, a professor at the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Warwick in the U.K. Early on in our research on this topic, Dr. Viala was uncommonly generous in offering her time and her deep understanding of this history. She also introduced us to Giselle Rompol. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director, Michael Whitmore.